As Craig said uh, last week, um, he concluded his sermon uh, talking about the conversion of a woman named Lydia and her household in the the town of Philippi, the region of Macedon. Uh, He said the gospel has established a beachhead in Rome at this point. This woman, Lydia, I want to focus on her for a moment. Uh, She was a wealthy lady, uh, probably upper class. One has an easy time imagining her as a a noble woman of sorts, very honorable, very kind, generous lady. It's easy for us to picture her being converted, her coming to Christ. But this week, we will be learning about a man who we're going to have a harder time we understand him correctly. We'll have a harder time imagining his conversion being authentic, especially being as radical as it was, and that would be that of the Philippian jailer. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back for free. We're beginning in verse 16. We'll end in verse 40. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer of God. 
When morning came, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported the message to Paul, saying, The magistrate sent word to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul replied, They have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And now, are they going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. Hear the word of the Lord. So, this jailer, as I mentioned, not a great guy. He's no Lydia. Um, We're going to get more into this later, but in order to do the job that he was tasked with doing, he had to be fairly callous. He had to deal with some some pretty horrendous uh, situations, uh, putting people in in, uh, cells that were quite terrible and designed to be so. But it can be hard for us to imagine this because we're 2,000 years removed and at least several centuries from removed, hopefully, from this type of, of prison experience in general. And so I was thinking, what's a, what's a good analogy that I can use to illustrate how terrible this man was or, or how calloused he was or how we, could, how we could look on him and see his conversion in a new light? And I looked at my table, and on my table was a series of books that my lovely girlfriend had just bought me, and it's the Chronicles of Narnia, the full series. This lovely hardcover, beautiful illustrated, beautifully illustrated. These are some of my favorite books. I know they're written for kids. I don't care. Uh, and who, who's read or seen the movie? Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the... Okay, a lot of you, better than the first service. Good job. So, some of you may be surprised, though, to learn that C.S. Lewis wrote himself into this story. One of the characters is based on C.S. Lewis as a child. Anybody guess who it was? It wasn't Peter. It was Edmund, who's like the worst. Like the first three quarters of this book, Edmund is just terrible. I'm sorry, if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, it was written 80 years ago. You're going to kind of have to work with me. So Edmund is based on C.S. Lewis. Edmund in this book is, he's just the worst kid. There's four little kids. He's the second youngest. He's like, he's a bad brother. He's not nice, especially to his little sister, Lucy, who's just the sweetest girl. Now, remember, Lucy gets into the wardrobe first, and she comes out. None of her siblings believe that there's this magical land in a wardrobe, which, as I say it out loud, I kind of understand But then the second time she goes in, Edmund is following her to the room with the wardrobe. And his intention is to to mock her when he catches her playing in the wardrobe because he thinks it's all in her imagination. So she goes into the wardrobe, shuts the door, but not all the way because that would be foolish, (laughs) of course. Well, then Edmund comes in and shuts the door all the way on himself. And he starts like walking toward the back of the wardrobe expecting to feel coats and then Lucy, like she's got to be back there. He just saw her walk in. Well, he stumbles into Narnia too. And he runs into this lovely lady called the White Witch. She's the bad guy. Uh, And he befriends her immediately. He's like, 
I'm on your side. She's like, I'll make you a prince, and you can lord it over your siblings. He's like, that sounds great to me. I don't like my older brother because he's an older brother. I don't like Lucy because I'm just the worst. And she, okay, she gives him magic candy. It's apparently not even that good, but she gives him magic candy that makes him want to come back and get more. And she's like, you have to go bring your siblings back. He doesn't know it, but she wants to kill him. But regardless, so he's, he's set up to betray his entire family, basically from the get. And then White Witch leaves. He's trying to find his way back through the wardrobe. He bumps into Lucy, and she's like, Edmund, you made it. You're back. Right? Like, she's just excited because she's just the sweetest little girl. Edmund's like, yeah, here I am. Shoot, you got me. Uh, and then they come out of the wardrobe together, and Peter and Susan, the older siblings, are like, where have you guys been? And Lucy's like, we were in Narnia again, and Edmund came with me this time. He can tell you, like, you'll finally believe me. And Edmund does the worst thing. Susan Lewis calls it the worst thing that he could do. He lets Lucy down. He says, we were only playing. We weren't really in Narnia. It's just little kid stuff. I was playing with her. Lucy runs off crying, and oh, he's just the worst. He's like a, can't say that word. He's like a little dirtbag of a human being, right? Spends about three quarters of the book being a dirtbag, but once he realizes that the white witch is evil, because she, she tries to kill him. But he realizes that she's the evil and that this Aslan, the, the Christ figure, that he's the good guy, like he's the king. Edmund's like, dude, I'm over there. Like I'm switching sides. I'm with him. And he does so to such an extent that he's willing to pick up a sword and fight in Aslan's army against the White Witch. Fight the White Witch herself. In the same way, the jailer is complete changed. Once he realizes that there's a king, and that he's not aligned with that king, and that he realizes something about that king that makes him want to be on the side of that king. He's like, dude, I'm on your side. Like, 100%. I'm not the old man that I used to be. I'm something new now, and I'm going to behave accordingly. So the question that I want to pose this morning, that I want us to be thinking about as we walk through this passage is, have you allowed the power of the gospel to, to really change your life? Do you look like something new? Are you on the fence? Do you believe that the gospel has the power to change lives? Or do you shrink back when it comes to sharing from unbelievers because you're afraid of being made fun of or called stupid or viewed as foolish? So, Paul and his missionary team going about their business. They're going to the place of prayer, and day after day, the slave girl, who has a spirit of divination, is following them, crying out, these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, day after day after day. And Paul becomes greatly annoyed. And when I read this, I was like, sweet, this is an opportunity for a good old word study. How else was this word used in the New Testament? What are other definitions? This kind of stuff excites me. So I go to blueletterbible.org, and I click on that Greek word. And it's only used one other time, and it means the exact same thing. So basically, this girl drove Paul nuts. Like, to state it colloquially. Like, she, yeah, she just annoyed him. So he cast the demon out of her. 
that had been hounding him for days. And, you know, one question that I had in approaching the text was, why didn't he do it sooner? If he knew this was a demon and that it was oppressing this girl, why didn't he cast it out sooner? And frankly, the Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us that it drove him nuts, and so he cast it out after a few days. So the point is this. Prepare to be greatly annoyed. Now, we have a habit of kind of diminishing or explaining away demonic activity in our culture. It comes from our enlightenment-influenced upbringing. We like reason, and we like logic, and we like to explain things scientifically. The notion, we as Christians will accept that it's possible that it happens in South America and Africa and Asia, but we don't, if you're like, dude, I think that's a demon, you're like, surely there's some other explanation. But the fact of the matter is demons are real and active in our culture. When people from other cultures who do actively engage in spiritual warfare, like overtly, when they see things happening in America, like school shootings, they're not surprised. They don't wonder what the cause is. They're like, that's the spirit of hate. That's the spirit of anger and the spirit of fear at work right there in America. But I'd like to extend this principle to the three enemies of Christians. That is the world, the flesh, and demons. Because all three of these will tempt us to sin, will try to cause us to neglect God, and they'll do so every single day. We will face one of them at least every single day, often more than one of them, and we must be prepared to be greatly annoyed. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like, it's going to happen, so just accept, accept that it's going to happen. Accept that you're going to be greatly annoyed. No, I mean prepare. Like, get ready. Uh, many of you have probably seen the series The Band of Brothers or read the book. It follows this airborne infantry company through World War II, and one of the officers involved in that company is a man named Dick Winters. He's a brilliant small unit tactician. Um, and he was a bit of a odd guy, though, because when this unit was stationed in Britain before D-Day, before they were to invade Normandy, during his spare time, you know what he did? He read field manuals. Like, that's all he did. He read these books that the army had written that were designed to teach people how to confront obstacles, like how to do battle. He's like, so I just studied them hour after hour after hour. And so when he landed in behind enemy lines the night before D-Day in France, he wasn't surprised when he confronted enemies and he was prepared to do so. He knew what to do because he had studied. Be like, Anthony, where's the field manual to prepare us to deal with the adversaries that will greatly annoy us on a daily basis. Guys, it's right here. Not this one. This one's mine. There's a lot back there for free, though. Immerse yourself in this. Study this. I mean, think about what is the example Paul provides to us right here? If you're confronted with a demon-possessed person, cast the demon out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the e equation that he gives us. That's how you do it when you're confronted with sin from the world or from your own flesh. What do you do? What do you do when you're confronted by sexual immorality? 
oh, gee, I don't, I don't know, Anthony. Where could I find the answer? Oh, I don't know. Corinthians tells us to flee, run away. The answers are here, but we're not going to be ready to deal with those adversaries if we're not studying God's word, if we're not immersed in it. So prepare. Don't be surprised when it happens. Expect it to happen and prepare a response for when you are confronted with it. Prepare to be greatly annoyed. So, what's the response of the Philippians when Paul does this good act? This good act, right? He casts the demon out of the world. Is that a good thing? Yes? Good to cast demons out. Bad to leave demons in, right? There we go, right? Well, the Philippians don't think so because they grab Paul and Silas, drag them through the streets, tear their clothes off, and beat them with rods. It's a fun time. See, to us as Christians, looking at this through a biblical lens, what Paul did was righteous. It was a good thing. But to the world, it was evil. It was bad because to them, this slave girl, she, she wasn't a human being. Slaves, women, and children did not constitute a human being in Rome at this time. So three, like, on three counts, she is not a human. So she doesn't matter. And what's more, this man, Paul, has robbed her owners of the ability to make a lot of money. Like, this was potentially their livelihood. This was a blessing from the gods in their eyes that Paul took away from them. Therefore, don't expect unbelievers to cheer for us. Again, Paul and, Paul and his team, they're, they're going about their business. They're not Mel Gibson in Braveheart looking to pick a fight right? They're going to the place of prayer, and they're definitely evangelizing, and they're working with this new church in Philippi, but they're not trying to instigate and antagonize. They're going about their business as citizens of the kingdom of God. So, what we view as righteous is often viewed as foolishness or even evil by the standards of of the world. I think of Marco brought this up a couple of weeks ago. He said, we live in a, in a world in which today if you simply say, I do, yes, I, I do believe homosexuality is a sin. I believe that God has a certain design for humans and that misses the mark in a way that's harmful to the people who are perpetuating it. To say that, even as lovingly as possible, to many unbelievers constitutes hatred and bigotry. Love Marco's comment, disagreement is, does not equal hatred. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the world doesn't like to hear what we have to say, even when we say it lovingly. That said, however, understand the difference between being persecuted and you just making unwise decisions and trying to stab people with your spirit of truth. Right? We're to deliver the truth in a gracious way, and obviously, sometimes it's going to upset people, but don't jump straight to help, help, I'm being repressed. Maybe you're just kind of being a bit of a jerk. So, don't jump, and again, Paul and Silas are uh, grabbed by a mob, dragged through the streets, and beaten with rods after they have their clothes stripped off. So, like, 
just careful with the I'm being persecuted because somebody made a nasty comment on your Facebook post. Like, don't, don't throw the term persecution on every single thing that happens to you. But, again, don't expect unbelievers to cheer for us. As a matter of fact, expect a lot of what we do to seem like foolishness to them and stupidity to them. Now, moving on to the jailer. So, Paul and Silas, they're in prison don't want to say unfortunately, but unfortunately. Many of us hear this story uh, of Paul and Silas in prison in Sunday school, which is, is great, but we're, it's accompanied by a really nice cartoon picture of Paul and Silas just like having a grand old time in this Philippian prison. And, like they got really loose shackles on their feet and they're singing and praying. In reality, these men had been beaten. They're bloodied, bruised, swollen. They're thrown into a dark, damp prison cell that's covered with feces, both human and rodent. Open wounds, feces, all the medical people in the congregation should be like, ah, bad, right? Like, this isn't a pretty picture. And the man that's responsible for putting them there and keeping them there, and this is his job. He's got to do this on a regular basis. So, like I said, this is, he's the Edmund of this story. He's probably not the greatest of guys if he's able to do this on a regular basis. You have to be a bit calloused. The earthquake happens about midnight. Now, for us, we're like, wow, and God sent an earthquake. But for the jailer, he's probably like, well, yeah, we... You know, we locked those two guys up who were following this certain God, and, you know, their God is probably getting them out, right? Like, this would make sense to him. Earthquakes were often associated with divine acts in the ancient world. So the fact that this God is using an earthquake to set his followers free is not surprising, necessarily, to the jailer. But he knows he's in trouble, because if he actually gets, if the prisoners have actually escaped, He's in for probably a pretty painful death. So he is like, well, I'll just take my own life right now and get it over with. This God clearly cares about these prisoners an awful lot. So, you know, I'm done. But Paul and Silas, or Paul cries out. He says, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now my question is, so Paul says that, and, and the guy's like, dude, what, what do I got to do to be saved? Like, he's like, I want to be on your side now. Now, my question is this. So the, before he learned that Paul and the rest of the prisoners were there, what did he know about this God? He knew he was powerful because of the earthquake. He knew he cared about Paul and Silas because he sent the earthquake to free them. What, where else did, what other information had he received and what information... What did the fact that Paul and Silas were still there tell him? Well, it revealed, like, their actions, not only in staying, but also in their praying and their singing hymns, they're revealing something to this guy about the God that they follow. See, their actions are a direct reflection of the nature of their God. So we as Christians, we have to think the same thing. What do our actions reveal about God? Because Sometimes, unfortunately, we, like, no matter what, if people know you're a Christian, they're going to be 
they're going to be thinking about, well, if that guy's a Christian, how do, why did he just do that? Or if she's a Christian, why did she just say that? She's not acting very Christ-like, or she, she's not, her actions aren't in accordance with her stated beliefs. And this was a rough sermon to prepare for, because I had to think about that a lot, and think for like three weeks about what my actions reveal to unbelievers around me about the nature of God, and it's not great, it's hard. But why does it matter, right? Like, they have the Bible that you know, our actions are not the gospel itself. Well, it matters because unfortunately for a lot of people, we can say the words of the gospel. We can say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins, was rose again in three days, and if you believe in him, you'll be saved. We can say that. But our words are, are often not going to be able to actually impact that person the way we want if our actions haven't been supporting that message. See, we have something the world is desperate for. I mean, Craig used the analogy of you know, the person dead in the water, and they, they need a, a magic life, life vest that not only is going to keep them afloat, but is going to bring them back to life. And we have that magic life vest we have the one thing that the world is looking for in all the wrong places and the one thing that it needs, that it truly, truly needs. And far too often our own actions, our own arrogance and pride and sinfulness get in the way of us being able to throw it to them. See, knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of the kingdom of God, it comes with a weight. Because we know I know, you know, that every person that we have ever met and that we ever will meet, they're either going to heaven or they're going to hell. They, unbelievers might not know that, but we know it. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his essay, The Weight of Glory, and he calls it the weight of glory, not the weight of our own glory, of our own being known by God and being welcomed in, but the weight of knowing that unbelievers currently are not known by God and that they will not be welcomed in. He says this, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Consider what our actions are revealing to unbelievers about the nature of God. Now we come to the actual 
conversion of the Philippian jailer. He asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I love the simplicity of the gospel here. You know, it took me until my third year at Cornerstone. Craig hired a fly, the last fly alive in Michigan, to bother me up here this morning. I'm sure of it. It hit me in the eye during first service. It was just in my water. Simplicity of the gospel. It took me until my third year at Cornerstone to actually be able to articulate the gospel because I thought it was way more complicated than it actually is. The gospel is just the story of Jesus. Hey, God became man, died for our sins, and rose again on the third day, and all we got to do is believe that, and we will be saved. That's the gospel. That's what we need to give to others. That's what is given to the jailer here in couple of things I, I, that stood out to me about this jailer's conversion is both immediate and it is radical in that it's accompanied by actions. The, the jail, he's not on the fence, just like Edmund. As soon as he realizes what's going on, as soon as he realizes the king, the real king, is over here. And I've been on the outside of his kingdom my whole life, but now I can get in. I know how to get in now. I'm in 100%. And he doesn't just say, like, oh, now I'm in. I can keep doing what I was doing before here. Just look like somebody who is a citizen of the kingdom of the world. No, he's like, I'm, my actions are going to be in keeping with this new, newfound faith. He takes them out that very hour and washes their wounds. And then he invites them into his household for a meal, which was a very intimate act. He is associating with a very publicly disgraced group of people in the Dark, deepest depth of their disgrace, right? This is not a, it's not cool to be a Christian in Philippi at this time. And that's the moment that he chooses to convert. I was thinking about this another way. We think of action as Christians for our neighbor's sake. It's important. Helps us to be able to share the gospel with them. It reveals things about the nature of God to them. But action... Faith-inspired action is also important for the sake of Christ because grace is free, but it's not cheap. So don't abuse it. Don't treat it cheaply. Like this, this book. This is a very nice book. Those of you who can't see it super well. This is a gift given to me by my girlfriend. It's free. It was given to me freely. Craig, if I threw this book against the wall, it would be, I don't know, good or bad? Would you probably throw something back at me? You'd be on Jasmine's side, right? You'd be like, Rhonda, you Edmund. Thank you. Right? So, don't abuse grace by acting just like you did before you were saved. I think of the woman in Luke 7 who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and then wipes them with her own hair. Jesus said, she's, he essentially says she's done this because she loved me. It wasn't an act of salvation. She wasn't buying salvation by this act. She was showing him her love for him by her actions. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. So now, if you love the Lord, if you have only just believed in him, begin to do something for him at once. 
It is a pity that we have so many Christian people, so-called, who do nothing for Christ, literally nothing. They have paid their pew rent, perhaps, and that is all Christ is to have out of them. He dies for them, redeems them with his precious blood, and they have done nothing for him in return. So what are the actions of somebody who has truly been changed by the gospel? You might be asking, Anthony, what, what can I do? Well, we have a really good opportunity to serve some people in our community, some people in need, which, by the way, service of people in need was one of the distinguishing marks of the church, according to Scripture, all over the place. We have a group of people back there who are marginalized by our society, often just ignored because they communicate differently, they act a little differently. Guess what? Those are people. And I bet, like Jesus says in Matthew 25, when he's, he returns and he sorts people into two groups, and one, one group are the unbelievers, and the other group are the, are the believers that are going to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, when he says, like, when I was hungry, you fed me, and I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they say, when did we see you like that? And he says, when you did it for the least of these, when you did it for the people who were most... And need, and I'm betting that if you show up to the thing Saturday, what's it called? The parade Saturday. One day Jesus is going to be like, "Hey, thanks for thanks for going to that parade for me. Thanks for taking care of, of the people in need in our community for me." The end of this passage can be a little confusing to us. Fortunately, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to move quickly through it. But it seems at first to be Paul seeking his own vindication. Because he's like, no, you're going to come get me out of jail yourself. You're not just going to let me go. Like, you have beaten us publicly. Like, we're not just going to leave quietly. And it may look like that on the surface to us initially, but it's because we don't understand public shame and how it functioned in the ancient world. It was a really big deal. And Paul and Silas, leaders of this very new small church in Philippi, had been very much publicly shamed by the leaders of the town. If they leave at this point, the church is going to be left in a state of disgrace. And we read in Thessalonians, Paul mentions that, like, hey, the way that I left Thessalonica because he was beaten and thrown out of the town, that in turn made things difficult for you. So Paul here is not seeking to redeem his own reputation or to vindicate his own ego. He's worried, he's concerned, he's caring for the reputation of the church. And in the same way, we should worry more about the church's reputation than our own. I think it's good to pause and ask ourselves whenever we're involved in debates, disputes, anything involving the church, are we upset because our own ego has been damaged? Or are we actually trying to defend the church? Because the church isn't perfect. Craig says it all the time. Church is not perfect. If you find a perfect church, leave so it can stay that way. Right? He said it. But guess who loves it? Jesus, you don't necessarily get to tell Jesus that the church isn't worth him loving, because he said it is. So care, care more about its reputation than your own. I'll invite the worship team up this time. Yes?
And I'll close with this, just again. Has the power of the gospel changed your life? Have you allowed it to? Are you transformed? Are you prepared to face the enemies? Do you just blend in with the world? Do you look any different at all? Consider what your actions reveal about the nature of God. That's a hard one. Do you treat grace cheaply? That's another hard one. Again, we're not earning righteousness by works, but we are valuing the grace that we've been freely given by our actions. Then finally, consider whose reputation you're most concerned with. Is it yours? Or is it the bride of Christ?